A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This episode is all about how normal farmers and people would get ready for winter. Because it's that time of year when we're doing things like putting in weather stripping, and it made me think about what our Tudor friends would have been doing right now in November, prepping for winter. Before we get started, though, TudorCon, of course, I mean, I do this every time, right? But unbelievably, we're like nine months from TudorCon, and I wanted to give you a quick update on speakers. We have five speakers confirmed, including Seamus O'Calley who has been on this show before talking about Henry VIII's medical ailments. So that's going to be super interesting. Also, Janet Wortman and Carol Ann Lloyd are both coming back. Both of them have popular podcasts, books, even a TED Talk. So it's going to be amazing. And I hope you're there. Plus, this week for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, I guess Black Friday is already over when I'm releasing this, but Cyber Monday, you can get your ticket for $100 off. That's right, friends. Enter the code TUDORCON when you check out for $100 off your ticket. So the website you want to go to is, again, englandcast.com slash TUDORCON. That's englandcast.com slash TUDORCON. Click the button to reserve your tickets, and then it'll bring up a buy now um, kind of pop-up form. And you will be able to fill in your information there and you can enter the code TUDORCON for $100 off. So now let's say that you were a yeoman farmer in rural England around 1510. What would you be doing right now towards the end of November? Well, autumn, of course, is the month where you have the most to eat, having just slaughtered your animals and brought in your crops. The work, though, is going to be in prepping everything for winter. Sometimes it seems like when you read these books, it seems like life was just this constant cycle that was just dominated by winter. Either you were planting and prepping for winter, or you were worrying about how you were going to get through winter, or you were actually in winter, either eating enough or starving. It's 
kind of like a metaphor for death, isn't it? Just this sort of always prepping for it and getting ready for it. So many of the rituals that we have today stem from winter. There's a reason why Lent is when it is. The early Christians knew that if you were going to ask people to give up meat, the best time to have them do that would be when they were out of meat anyway. And of course, if you're hungry, having a context to put that hunger into makes it much more bearable. You aren't just hungry because you're out of food, you're hungry because you're getting closer to God. Anyway, the world was dominated by winter. Smaller farmers would slaughter most of their animals before the winter because they likely wouldn't have had enough food to keep them alive through the cold months. Of course, not only are you feeding your animals, but you're also feeding your family and you're worrying about keeping everybody warm. It wasn't unusual for people to bring an animal or two into the house, into wherever they were living, and keep them warm that way, and even the extra body heat would help to heat your house as well. So the traditional time to slaughter was on November the 11th at the Feast of Martinmas. St. Martin was a Roman soldier. He lived from 316 to 397, so 4th century, and he decided to convert to Christianity. And he was actually imprisoned because he refused to fight. He became a monk, he founded a monastery, and he went on to become a bishop. But at one point, he tried to avoid becoming a bishop. He hid in a goose pen in the monastery, so the saying goes. But the geese all barked, and he was discovered by people who carried him to the throne of the cathedral. And so began the tradition to eat geese at Martin Mass in order to help him punish the geese. The 11th of November also starts the Christmas cycle. It falls just about 40 days before Christmas. In England, as in most of the Northern Hemisphere, this was a time of plenty, with people eating lots of freshly roasted meats. There was tons of produce, nuts, and all your vegetables. They would use all the animal parts. They would make blood puddings, for example, just using up everything. And it was a time when people had a lot to eat. As much of the meat as possible would, of course, be preserved for the coming winter, though. If you were a wealthy landowner, you would be able to afford to keep your animals fed and housed throughout the winter months. So you would have fresh meat longer. But poorer people wouldn't have the luxury of feeding their livestock when they were already struggling to feed themselves and their families, as I said. So their animals would be slaughtered and the meat would be salted. One of the major rules around this period was around poaching. This was when a poor person would hunt meat that didn't belong to them, either from the royal hunting grounds like the New Forest or from the land of wealthy nobility. We might think that it would be easy enough to get away with poaching. I mean, after all, how could you tell one deer from another? It's not like they had tags on them. But in towns where everybody knew everybody else, showing up with fresh deer that you needed skinned would draw attention. Even if you were able to sneak it in at night, throughout the winter, as you had meat and others didn't, you could be suspected of poaching. And the penalty for poaching ranged from having your hand cut off to death by hanging. So it's something that you would only do if you were very, very desperate. 
The first thing you would have to do with your animals is get them in from their summer grazing yards. This was the common lambs, and you would have to herd them back to your farm. In the 1530s, of course, the monastery land was sold. Flocks were broken up, large common fields were enclosed, and that would eventually lead to rebellions like the famous Ketz Rebellion and others around land enclosures. It would be really hard to underestimate how much land enclosure changed England in the mid-16th century. I've actually done episodes around that, which I will link to in the show notes for this if you're curious and want to dig deeper. But for now, in the early 16th century, there's still plenty of common land, and you've got to go out and get your animals back to your farm. This isn't necessarily an easy task. You know the saying about herding cats? It could also probably apply to cows and to sheep. It would take several people and even dogs helping to bring the animals back. Once your animals were back, you would have to butcher them. Your skins, their skins, would be used for leather goods like shoes or blankets and sometimes outer clothing. But a huge job was salting the meat. The work of making the salt was done by a person who was known as the Waller. But there were only a few towns in England that had the ability to make salt. Most people had to buy it, and it would be imported from Spain or from France. Salt had long been a valuable commodity. You look at entire cities built up where there were salt mines like Salzburg, which course, has the name salt right in it. But one little tidbit about salt's history, which I talked about when I did my episode on salt, but I'm going to say it again here, was that the Romans valued salt so much that we still use words today that they actually created to show how important salt was for them. So for example, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. That's where we get the term salary. It was a salarium. It was the amount in salt that they were paid. So salarium, now we get salary from that. Also, they would put salt on fresh vegetables to give it flavor. That's where we get the word salad. So salt was a really big deal. When the Romans first came to southern England, they discovered that the Britons here were making salt in a different way. They would pour brine on charcoal and then scrape off the crystals. This was the traditional way that people would make salt, even into the 16th century. Of course, the equipment would have changed, but it was the traditional way. In Wales, there were silver mines, and the Romans would mine for silver, of course, but leftover was lead. The lead was used to make these very large, shallow pans for boiling the brine to make their pan-evaporated salt. If you're listening to this from a town in England that ends in a witch like Norwich or Droitwich or Middlewich, congratulations, you live in a salt-producing town, and that's generally associated with having a brine spring. The Anglo-Saxon word for those springs was witch, so of course, those names are a holdover from that period. In fact, Middlewich, Norwich, and Droitwich are known as the three Domesday witches because of their inclusion in the Domesday book. If you wanted to make salt yourself, you needed the brine. Natural brines can occur underground, as I said, if you were near one of those towns, or you could even use seawater. The Waller woman would have had a furnace with a flat pan over the top. The pan was lead. It was very flat, like I said, so the salt could gather as the brine evaporated. 
Women wallers worked in walling yards, which was a place where you made the salt. As the brine evaporates, there's a skim surface of salt on the edge that you scrape off. You would want to keep the salt clean. Of course, in this large pan, there would be leaves that would fall into it or sticks. And so you'd have to use some type of broom or brush to get that out. Also, there would be little bits floating around. And one thing they would do is drop some type of protein into the mixture. And the little bits would bind with that. So some eggs or some animal blood. Dirtier salt would be used for everyday use. And then the very cleanest salt was used for cheese. The salt would be packed into a wicker basket to take home, giving it a nice shape and allow for the water to drip off as you're carrying it and for the salt to dry on the way home. So this is an activity you would have been doing around this time of year to prep your meat and prep your vegetables, everything that you want to have preserved over the winter. The housewife would have the job of salting the meat. She would cut portions and then coat every surface of the meat with salt. You would want to dehydrate the meat. The juices are what let the infections come in. Then you would store it in brine, which was this mixture of water that's been boiled with salt and herbs. This allows the salt to go further into the tissues of the meat. You leave it in the brine for three days. And then you can pack the meat into a barrel with even more salt for the final part of the preserving. And that's where you store it. And then during the winter, you can take out a piece of meat now and then to rinse it off and cook with it. So hopefully around this time of year, if you were a woman, you would be very, very busy chopping up the meat and salting it, putting it in the brine and then packing it with even more salt and having many, many barrels of meat to see you through the winter. The other job you would do if you were a housewife at this time of year is to go out into your herb garden and harvest anything that you might need for winter colds. One plant would be the hyssop, which you would use a lot. Even today, people drink hyssop tea. It's a mint tea. Um, It's a member of the mint family. Looks like a smaller bit of lavender. And it's used even today, like I said, to help treat coughs, earaches, asthma, and even bloating. I read on WebMD that studies are beginning to back up some of these sort of age-old folk remedies, showing that hyssop can offer some impressive health benefits, they say. Now, of course, this is not medical advice. Don't take this as medical advice. Go talk to your doctor before you start doing anything like that. I have to put that disclaimer in. But hyssop is rich in flavonoids and can act as an antioxidant, which, of course, is good for all sorts of things. Also, herbalists say that it reduces the risk of ulcers, asthma, and reduces inflammation. So hyssop was one of these herbs that women would be harvesting and getting things ready, of course, to treat winter colds and winter coughs and all the things that would come up with the winter. This is also the time when you're trying to preserve your other fruits and vegetables, not just your meats. So of course, sugar was really expensive. But you could make a syrup using just a little bit of sugar and then have things preserved in that to see you through the winter. While the women were busy salting and all of that kind of stuff, the men were bringing in the crop, like the wheat or the barley. Not only would you have to harvest the crop, but then you have to figure out how to store it. 
Um, one way you would do that is to cut branches from a gorse bush. Gorse bushes are very, very prickly. So you would cut lots and lots of bushes or lots and lots of branches of the bushes and then put them on the floor of the barn and it would help to keep out the mice and rats because it's so prickly. It would also let in some air and keep the crop from rotting and from all kind of getting smashed and ruined that way. The gorse was super prickly. Like I said, you'd spread it around with big, long forks. The barley needed to be protected because it was used throughout the year to make your bread and your ale. So as the women were salting the meat and preparing the herbs and the fruits and the vegetables, hopefully the men were spreading out a lot of gorse all over the barn and filling it up with lots of wheat and barley. And actually, most of the notes I got from this, most of this information came from the Tudor Monastery Farm episode where they talked about how medieval people survived in winter. And they show a very cool example of the men trying to spread this gorse bush all over the floor. I'll have a link. I'll actually just put it in the show notes so you can watch it there. Um, But it's very funny trying to watch them kind of spread out this gorse bush, gorse bush, say that 10 times fast, gorse bush using these uh, big long forks and kind of pitchforks and things like that. So um, that was what the men would be doing and then bringing in the barley and the wheat and putting it all on top. Once the barn was prepped and was ready for the barley, you'd pile it all onto the cart. Everyone from the local area would come and help bring in the harvest. And after all of the carts were filled, you would choose a harvest queen, like a homecoming queen. It would be a local young lady who would ride on the back of the final cart to the farmhouse and the barn. You know, where I live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, there's all these fall fairs. Um, every little town, I mean, I'm sure that happens everywhere, right? I know even in LA, I remember the LA County Fair happened in the fall. Lots of fall fairs at this time of year. And, you know, that's not that's nothing new. This goes back to medieval times and even before when people would celebrate harvests. And I was just thinking that here at the fairs, they always have like different fair queens. And they did that. Our Tudor friends would have done that as well, having these harvest queens, um, these young fair maidens who would ride on the back of the final cart to bring it into the farmhouse and the barn. And then there would be lots of celebrating for a good harvest because that meant that people were not going to go hungry that year, at least through the winter. One way they would celebrate was with games, lots of games and fun. And after the final cart was pulled up into the barn, the ladies would wait, forming a wall holding jugs of water. And the men would try to break through holding on to a piece of the barley and try to get it into the barn without getting it wet. So the men would get all wet and there would be much rejoicing. Because, of course, I just had to say there was much rejoicing, which is a Monty Python reference, because that is what I do in this podcast. Anyway, it's kind of like every episode has to have a Monty Python reference. So, and there was much rejoicing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you don't know. And if you know, you know. Anyway, at the end of September, so a little bit before this, you would have celebrated Michaelmas, which was the feast of St. Michael the angel who protects the Christian church and the traditional end of the farming year. This was the time of year when you would release your geese into the empty fields and let them eat up all of the crops that you weren't able to get as you were harvesting to fatten them up. 
And of course, then at Martin Mass, you would eat the goose. So see, it all works together. At Michaelmas, you release them. They spend a couple of months out eating all of the extra seeds and all of the stuff that was in the dirt that you weren't able to get. They're all fattened up, and then you eat them in November. So there we go. All of your winter prep work. I'm glad that right now I'm just dealing with leftovers from Thanksgiving and figuring out how to cover up my outdoor AC unit and not how to store a bumper crop of barley. Although that would be a much better problem than a tiny crop of barley. Anyway, you can hop onto the website for show notes at englandcast.com slash winter, englandcast.com slash winter. And remember to grab your TudorCon tickets for $100 off this week at englandcast.com slash TudorCon. Enter the code TudorCon when you check out. I think that's it. I hope for those of you in the US, you're having a wonderful um, holiday. You had a wonderful holiday weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. And I will talk with you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoot a board in Bauerbrick, that soul is Samley's on seat. Men's cool maiden of me, fair and Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.